compelling insights. Nope. Unpredictable conversations. Nope. Encouragement for your day. Nope. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Nope. Easy, big fella. Easy. Easy. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. 888-914-9149. That's the number sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters for you to call and be on the air with your comment or question. 888-914-9149. I do get a plethora of emails, and I am grateful for all of them. Even if you disagree with me, that's cool. My address is patrick at relevantradio.com. The lady, interestingly, the lady who had sent in the question about the burlesque shows. If you didn't hear that question and my answer, boy, did you miss some stuff. That's in the second, or the last hour, the previous hour, I should say. So you'll be able to access that about an hour after the show is over. But she said, I, she says, Patrick's out there saving souls and saving cash. Thank you. And by that, I think she means helping her avoid spending money on entertainment that wouldn't be good. I think that's what she means by that. Well, thank you for that. Appreciate that follow-up email. And let's go over to John now listening in Chicago. Hi, John. Hi, Patrick. Uh, Yes, I have two questions. One has to do with grace. You know, you hear grace and then you hear divine grace. Is there like a top shelf or something different? (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. So let's look at So fundamentally, grace, properly so-called, is we can look at it in two ways. One is that grace is the very life of God himself. And we're told by St. Paul that the, the grace of God is poured out into our hearts. And so it uses almost like a liquid analogy. It's not liquid, obviously, but it's, it's our way of sharing in the very life of God. And we also refer to that as sanctifying grace. Um, so that's what it is in that context. Uh, also, it's God's gracious attitude toward us as sinners, that he loves us and he wants to save us and he, he will give us everything we need for salvation. Not everybody accepts that, but that also is part of what we mean when we talk about grace, his gracious love toward his creatures, in this case us. But if we were to distinguish between two major types of grace, it would be between sanctifying grace which is in you, it inheres in your soul, it means it, it, it's God's righteousness that makes you righteous. He's imparting that divine life into you, so it's in your soul. The other category we could call prevenient grace, sometimes it's called actual grace, and those would be graces exterior to you, it's not in your soul, it's not an increase of your own righteousness, but these are graces that God sends you or he, he bestows upon you through maybe the use of sacramentals, for example, reading the Holy Bible, making the sign of the cross with holy water, praying the rosary, receiving a blessing from a priest, etc. Those kind of graces are external to you, and they're little nudges of grace that God provides you to nudge you, your heart and your mind toward him. You can resist them, but if you cooperate with them, they'll have the effect of elevating your mind and your soul to God and the things of God. So there are other gradations that some theologians will apply, but all of them would fall within either of those two categories. The sanctifying grace that's in you and changes you, and the actual or prevenient grace that's external to you. Does that make it a little clearer? 
Yeah, but when you said if you make the sign of the cross with holy water, if you don't make it with holy water, is it, you know, is it less? No, no. In other words, it, these this would be an example of a sacramental, which is not a sacrament. So sacramentals with or without holy water. The reason I mention that is because it's very common for Catholics. We go into the church and we bless ourselves with holy water. We make the yeah. sign of the cross. You know, we dip your fingers in the font. But it doesn't matter. You don't have to do that. And if you just made the sign of the cross, that's a sacramental. If you sprinkled holy water, that's a sacramental. If you lit a blessed candle, that's a sacramental. You read the Holy Bible, that's a sacramental. In the Bible itself is a sacramental. The blessing of a priest, the genuflection, uh, prayers that you might pray, all of these things are in that world of sacramentals. And those are these external prompts that help nudge us in the right direction. But they don't change us interiorly the way sanctifying grace does. Okay. And the last question, the second question, the last question, mm-hmm. that should do with the Eucharist. Um, God is present in us as long as we're, I guess, we're, well, I, I think that he's present in me, even though I may have mortal sinned and have, haven't confessed it yet. But I was told that when you receive the Holy Communion, it only lasts in you for 10 minutes. So, I mean, are they talking just about the physical host or, you know, to me it sounded like, am I making my point? uh, Yeah, you are. I think I know what you mean. So let's talk about that. So the real presence of Christ begins or, or happens, if we want to use that term, when the miracle of transubstantiation takes place on the altar, when the priest with the proper form and matter says, this is my body and this is my blood. So it's one liturgical action, but there are two moments within that one liturgical action where the bread is transubstantiated into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, but it's under the appearance of bread, so that remains, but the the reality of the bread is no longer there. It's been replaced by the reality, the substance of Jesus himself, and the same is true with the chalice of wine a few moments later. So when you receive Holy Communion, the real presence of Jesus is under the appearance of bread for as long as what once bread has the properties of bread. So I don't personally think it lasts as long as 10 minutes. I've heard that too. I've heard some people say even 15 minutes. I don't think it lasts that long. Probably maybe five minutes or less than that even. For this reason is that when you receive the host into your mouth, immediately the body starts breaking it down with saliva emulsification, it passes into the stomach, and very quickly, the it, it, it can no longer properly be called bread. It doesn't have the characteristics or property of bread anymore. So even though we don't, we don't claim to say at exactly this precise moment, we have no way of measuring that. But as a rule of thumb, within five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, depending, I would say you can be assured that the real presence of the Lord is no longer there because the properties of bread are no longer present. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. Uh, Okay. Thank you very much, and uh, God bless. Yeah, thank you, John. Good questions all, that's for sure. 888-914-9149. How about uh, David now in California? California. I can't do it. Good morning, Patrick. Thank you Hi, for David. taking my telephone call. 
Yes, sir. Good morning and welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Um, More looking for some advice, Patrick, than than anything here. Um, We're in. We are in Lenten season, and um, you're in the what season? Lenten season. Lenten. Okay, got it. And it's a time to reflect, right? A time to reflect and a time to, you know, to ask for forgiveness. Um, You know, the last couple uh, gospel readings last week really touched my heart. Um, So let me get to the point. Um, I have a a brother that um, we 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 have we we have an issue. Um, Long story short, there was it was some it involved some physical, um, and it's and it's been a struggle. It's been a struggle. You mean like you guys got into a fight? Yeah. um, Yeah. Well, I got, um, well, you can say that, but not face to face. How about that? It was, it was done maliciously. I feel just, you know, he did it, but you know, he hit me from behind. Um, needless to say, you know, one of the gospels that I read is, you know, settle before you go to the judge, you know, settle your, your case, you know, reach out and, and, you know, and whatever, and you mentioned it earlier today, whatever's not loosened on earth will not be loosened. Right. And I pray for, I have prayed for him. Uh, I pray, you know, that I do forgive him. I haven't fully, fully forgive him. And, and I think maybe Mm -hmm. this is something that a lot of listeners are going through as well with their family members. Right. I mean, this is, I don't want to say common, common, but I know that um, some people do go through what I'm going through right now. And that is, with a, an argument with a family member or, you know, we haven't spoken for more than a year. And mm-hmm. I thought to myself, okay, you know, when that happened, maybe a week or two weeks, it's been more than a year that, that I feel that I deserve an apology for what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not, now I'm to the point where I'm like, I don't really want an apology, but I do want to let him know that I forgive him for my sanity because this really not only affects me, but it also affects my family. Uh, I'm married for, uh, I've been married and I have, and I have children, we have children. And mm-hmm. so I know it affects my family, but I just don't know where to start. Do you live anywhere near each other where you could get together for a cup of coffee or something? Yes, <laughs> we live pretty close. <laughs> the reason I ask that, David, is because sometimes these things are better able to be resolved face-to-face. Not always, but maybe there's a way there that if you see each other face-to-face, a lot of um, the ambiguity that comes from an email or some other communication where you don't see each other face-to-face can be lost in translation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you already know all the pertinent Bible verses. You know, Jesus says in the Our Father, the prayer that he gives us, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he also says the same thing in the same passage in Matthew 6, 15. He says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And just um, 6, 7, 8, and let me think, uh, 12 chapters later in Matthew 18, Jesus is responding to a question from Peter. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven times, it's also said. And that's a figurative number. It doesn't mean literally. Once you reach that point, you don't have to forgive anymore. It's a way of saying basically as often as it takes. You, you, 
you forgive as often as is necessary. I'm thinking of Jesus on the cross also as you're talking about this. And as he's being murdered, what does he say? He says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So the Lord is forgiving them and asking the Father to forgive them. Even though they weren't asking for forgiveness, they were still hammering nails and taunting him, and and yet he still forgives them. So I see in Jesus' action there a paradigm for how we should be. Now, one other thing, and I'll throw it back to you, David. Forgiving your brother doesn't, of course, mean that you have to be pals. And maybe the relationship has been strained to the point where you, you can never really regain that kind of friendship or camaraderie that you once had. That's okay. I mean, it's not ideal, and I wish it hadn't happened, but we have to be careful not to confuse the emotion of feeling chummy with somebody with forgiving. You can still experience deep pain and feelings of anguish when you think about a person who has done you harm and still forgive that person. So forgiveness is an act of the will in which you ask God to to bless this person, to forgive him. I forgive you. I don't hold it against you. It still causes me pain, maybe. Or every time I hear your name or I see your face, it causes me pain, maybe. But you can still forgive somebody from the heart, even if you have those continuing emotions, if that makes sense. You see what I mean? Yes, I I absolutely do. And it, it just, again, I just, you know, I'm, I'm just one of those thinkers that, you know, and it's neither here nor there anymore, but had he just, hey, you know what? I was in the wrong I apologize a week later. Again, I, I just think it's been more than a year, and I just it makes me feel as if he probably feels he did nothing wrong. Does he know how you feel? Have you ever communicated that to him, or was it just the cone of silence that came down after this happened? Um, you know, we texted each other once or twice, and, and that's been it. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, we, we, we saw each other recently. It's interesting how you said that, that, those emotions come up when you see that person or you hear their name. But I don't wish him any ill will. I don't. I wish him the best. And you're absolutely right, though. Our relationship will never be the same. I mean, I, I yeah. just and it's sad and it's unfortunate, but it'll never be the same. But yeah, we we did. I I extended an invitation um, recently, and and he he obliged. He went. Uh, he went, and all my family members we got to meet at, at mass. So mm-hmm. that was beautiful. Um, but, uh, outside of that, um, it, it has been, it's been a little painful. Sure. I can understand. So what I see here, David, are two distinct, but related things. One is forgiveness and the other is reconciliation. So you can forgive your brother from your heart and ask God to help you deal with the feelings that are inevitable. And maybe we're only human. We have to deal with our emotions. It's part of, part of our human reality. And you can ask God to help you deal with those emotions, but you as an act of the will can forgive your brother even if you never see him again. Or if you ever do see him, it's irksome to you. You can still forgive him. Reconciliation would be a wonderful fruit of forgiveness if that's possible. Only time will tell, but you can still forgive your brother even if you don't find a way to reconcile with him. And that would be in itself enough. It would be better if you could reconcile, you know, ask God for that gift and, and see what he says. I've, I've always remembered a comment that I read somewhere, and I don't know where I picked this up, but somebody who said that holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It only hurts you. And so in the case of, of 
coming to the point where you can forgive him, then you can get rid of all that poison that's inside you. It's not doing any harm to him. It's just doing harm to you. So, you know, you win when you forgive. Thank you so much. You've given me a lot to think about and to process, and I appreciate that. May God bless you and and all the uh, relevant listeners. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, the Bible says how how wonderful it is when brothers dwell together in peace. And isn't it true that sometimes the people who hurt you worst are members of your own family? It's just funny how that works at times. People you love the most, the people you're closest to in this world, can be the ones who can inflict the gravest wounds. So help us, Jesus. Let's take a break. And we will come right back. And if you want to call, this would be the perfect time to do it because the line just opened up. It's free, free for the taker. So call 888-914-9149. I'll be right back. Don't deny me this pain I'm going through. Please forgive me if I need you like I do. Big time gratitude to Charity Mobile for sponsoring the Patrick Madrid Show. They're a pro-life cell phone company with nationwide coverage and no contracts. You can choose from the latest phones or bring your own. New customers can mention Patrick for a free phone or another offer. Info at CharityMobile.com. Welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Have a question? Give Patrick a call. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid on Relevant Radio. Love my job. I love hanging out with all of you. So thank you for listening. Please tell your friends about this program and Relevant Radio. And if you don't have a bumper sticker yet, go to relevantradio.com and under uh, support, you can order a bumper sticker for Relevant Radio in your area. And they're free. We'll send them to you. Just go there and get yours. Uh, I, I had to smile. I got a note here from Linda. Linda, thank you. She says, Patrick, I sent this message to you. I'm, I'm awaiting a response when you have time. Thank you. Um, well, Linda, I'm going to respond now. Thank you for the follow-up. But please know that there's a vast amount of emails that come in every day. Comes in, come in, come in. So lots and lots of emails come in. And I do my very best to answer as many as possible. So please, you know, I I picture you there with your arms crossed, tapping your foot in impatience, waiting for me to get back to you. So please understand, um, we do the best we can. So here is Linda's question. Um, She says, I learned of the passing of the husband of a woman I worked with many years ago. As I read his obituary, I saw that his 44-year-old daughter passed away a few years before. This poor woman lost both her husband and daughter within two years. I bought a sympathy card. My question is, what should I write in the card to compassionately address both deaths? Thank you. Well, Linda, I think that something brief and heartfelt is sufficient. I mean, obviously, you can write more if you wish to do so, or depending on how well you knew these people or know this woman. But a heartfelt statement of condolence, and please know that I'm praying for the repose of their souls. I'm praying for you in this time of grief, Um, may God comfort you, things of that nature, I think that would be very well received and certainly appropriate. If you feel moved to write more, you know, that's fine. But I think just the gesture, 
of sending this would be um, it would be comforting to this lady. Yeah, and I can't imagine losing two close people like that two years apart. So God bless her. Thank you for the email. Let's go now to Francisco in Stockton. Good morning, Francisco. Francisco, it sounds like you're... Hi there. There we go. Okay, you're ready. You ready for action, Francisco? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. So my question is, is on Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, specifically. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, just given the context, um, I've heard uh, people use this, saying that um, they don't need uh, really to sacrifice things during Lent. Mm-hmm. And also seeing the mass as a sacrifice also and more like a Eucharistic celebration, more like a supper and not so much as a sacrifice. So I kind of wanted to mm-hmm. get your thoughts and input on, on those two, two things. Sure. So let's look at them in order. So in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 7, it says, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have con- condemned the guiltless. So this is a reference to the Old Testament, and to kind of truncate this into a synopsis, the, the prior to the institution of the Mosaic Law, while the Israelites were wandering in the desert, God did not enjoin upon them things like animal sacrifice or all the other things that were loaded down upon them through what are called the mitzvot, the, the 613 ceremonial laws. And they were not required to do any of those things other than the moral law, and that's part of it. But they weren't required to do things like sacrificing bulls and goats and pigeons and turtle doves and all of the basically rigmarole that they had to do once the Mosaic Law was imposed upon them, and it was imposed as a punishment because the Israelites were so enamored of the Gentile ways and doing things like offering sacrifices and whatnot. So God was saying to them, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And he, of course, desires more than just mercy. But, he, but the whole point of imposing the Mosaic ceremonial law on them with all of these incumbent animal sacrifices was to show them the futility of doing that. It's futile. You sacrifice a goat, you sacrifice a bull. In any intrinsic sense, these sacrifices can't accomplish what they symbolize. Now, they do point toward the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the Lamb of God, as St. John the Baptist called him, who takes away the sins of the world by his death. But all of those animal sacrifices were, were purely symbolic in the Old Testament. And God told them repeatedly, you don't need a king, I'm your king. No, we want a king. You know, we want to be like the nations. They have kings. We want a king. But you don't need a king. I am your king. I am God. I am your king. After a while, they just kept clamoring. And finally, God said, okay, great. You're going to have kings. And a whole bunch of them are going to be bad kings. And they're going to get you into trouble and even be carried away by the nations in captivity, etc. So getting a king was not God's plan for them. But they insisted and they insisted they finally get a king. Bad things happen. 
They wanted animal sacrifice. God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If only you had learned this lesson, you wouldn't be stuck with all of the, the superstructure of animal sacrifice that you now have to do constantly, every single day. Can you imagine, you know, just the heaps of carcasses and entrails? And oof, I don't even like to imagine it because it must have stunk to high heaven. Anyway. That's part of what is going on here in Matthew 12, chapter 7. So what Jesus is saying here in, in, the, in the verse just before it, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's referring to himself. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. It's himself, the true sacrifice. So there's much that one can say, and the church fathers and doctors and Bible scholars have written volumes on this passage and what it means, but I'll suffice to say, in context, this is what he's saying. So that doesn't mean <laughs> just because somebody sees the word sacrifice that therefore uh, it means that, there's, that you don't have to sacrifice something for Lent. That would be a very facile way of looking at the passage is just because it's the same word doesn't mean therefore you don't need to to perform any sacrifice. So the the way I would look at it would be to say then two are not mutually exclusive. So as you look in the book of Acts you see examples of where uh, the sacrifice of praise is referred to. Uh, we offer our bodies as a sacrifice we're told. So these are examples, and, and he doesn't mean offer your body in like a ritual sacrifice. Um, Hebrews 13, for example, in verse 15 says, uh, Through him, Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, um, and, and so on. So it would just be a very superficial way of looking at this passage to say that it doesn't involve uh, other things that you might do to sacrifice. Jesus says, if you wish to be my disciple, deny yourself. What does that mean? Well, you're offering a sacrifice. I'm denying myself something I would like, sleep, drink, food, whatever it may be. And by denying yourself, you are offering a sacrifice. So I hope that's helpful to you, Francisco. And uh, thanks for the call. Let's go to Danielle now in Helena, Montana. Good morning, Danielle. <clears throat> Good morning, Patrick and Cyrus. I'm calling from beautiful Helena, home of the beautiful St. Shauna Cathedral. I've been and there. It's I'm gorgeous. A convert. Yes. I'm a convert to the faith, and so some things, when I read the gospel, I don't understand everything they mean, of course. Mm -hmm. And in today's gospel reading, which I believe is Matthew 2017, verse 28, mm -hmm. and it talks about um, Jesus' Well, he's being referred to as the Son of Man. So my first question is, why do we refer to him as the Son of Man? Because he's the Son of God, right? And then Let's the pause there. One is Let's when... pause there. Okay. Let's pause there. Okay, so the, the passage in question here, Matthew 20, um, just looking at the, the statement, it's Jesus himself who calls himself the Son of Man. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and said to them on the way, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So I think the, the question that you're really asking is, why is that phrase used there? 
And the, the church fathers and the doctors of the church say that Jesus always uses, or when he refers to himself in this manner, he always says the Son of Man. And it's others who refer to him as the Son of God. So Jesus doesn't use that formula, Son of God, about himself. He uses the phrase Son of Man. And the reason for that, it seems, is that this was an example of the Lord's humility. Even though he is God himself, he was humble in his use of this phrase, Son of Man, which, of course, has lesser import than Son of God. He permitted others to call him the Son of God because he is, but he himself used Son of Man. So I think that answers okay. that question. What was the okay, second one? Okay, that was always confusing to me. The second one is when he's on his way to Jerusalem, and the mother of the son Zebedee, she stops him and asks him if he would uh, seat her sons at the right and left hand right. of God. And he said, well, you don't know what you're asking because it's not mine to give. But who is supposed to sit at the left hand of God. We know who sits at the right hand, but we don't know. Right. Well, in this passage, yeah, so we have to be a little more precise here because she says, when she says to Jesus, command that these two sons of mine sit one at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. Jesus said in reply, you do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the chalice that I'm going to drink? Now, he's referring there to his passion and crucifixion. And you know this because in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prays to the Father three times, Lord, if possible, let this cup or this chalice pass from me. It's a, it's a figure of speech, meaning that he was going to drain the dregs of suffering in his passion and his crucifixion. It, it would be utterly excruciating what he was about to go through. And he uses this simile or this analogy of a chalice that he would drink. That's what he's referring to here. And in a little further, when they say, yes, we can do it, he says, well, my chalice, you will indeed drink, meaning that you are going to be martyrs when the time comes. But to sit at my right and at my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, it's unspoken here. We're not told who these two people are, or if it's more than two, we, we don't know. It's, he doesn't tell us. I think it's safe to assume that the Blessed Virgin Mary would be one of them, but even that is not told to us. So the main thing here is that it's not sitting at God's right hand, God as God, yes, but Jesus in his incarnation in a unique way seems to be what's being referred to here. In other words, the highest of his followers. And it's interesting because in Acts chapter 5, when St. Stephen is being stoned to death, as the first martyr of the church, what does he say? He says, I can see heaven opened and Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. So there's another example of where you see Jesus on a throne sitting next to the power of God, as St. Stephen describes it. So it's hard for us to kind of imagine what that actually means if when we see it for ourselves when we get to heaven. But in the meantime, though, um, we, we're not told who these people will be. We're just told that it's not going to be them and that the mother, you know, doesn't really realize what she's asking. Is mm -hmm. that helpful, Danielle? Okay. It is. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. And God bless you guys for including you there. Oh, you're most um, like welcome. I said, I'm a convert to the faith, mm -hmm. and you guys helped me 
with that journey. So appreciate that. You're most welcome. Thank you. And uh, give my kind regards to Rose Casey and everybody in Helena who does such great work with Catholic Radio. We love you guys, and we sure appreciate your carrying relevant radio in uh, beautiful Helena, Montana. I had an opportunity to go there. It was great. Uh, let's go now to Hayden in College Station, Texas. Good morning, Hayden. Good morning. Uh, I'm calling in with a question about purgatory. Uh, I'm Catholic and I believe in purgatory, but more so a question about how it works practically. So if human souls uh, on earth are capable of undergoing change because we are inside of time and and time, at least in my understanding, is this ability for things to change. Mm -hmm. When we get to purgatory, which is outside of time, how are souls still capable of change? Yes. Well, we're not outside of time, strictly speaking. And the reason is because, let's say, looking at purgatory as an example of this, the soul enters into this state at a certain point and exits that state at a certain point. So when the soul goes to the beatific vision and sees God face to face, purgatory is concluded. So there is duration. Now, how would, we, how would that duration of time correspond with time in this earthly life, we don't know. Um, I find more commonly that we could define time, as we know it in this life, as the measurement of change. Now, there must be some time, I mean, there is time in the life to come, at least for those who are in purgatory, because it starts at one point, ends at another point, and then they go into the the eternity of God, we don't experience that eternity exactly the way God does, but we participate it, participate in it in a, in a subordinate way, but it's still a kind of timelessness that doesn't apply to purgatory or doesn't apply to this life. So there's no way for us to know. We can't parse it out and say, well, you know, like if you were to compare units of measurement between Celsius and Fahrenheit, for example, or the metric system versus the imperial system with miles and inches and feet, things like that. There's no way for us to do that. We just know that in purgatory, there's a start and a stop. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. So you're basically saying it's almost as if there are two different times. Um, yeah, we can one say that. which might be moving faster or slower than another. Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. Now, even there, I don't know, I don't presume to know you know, moving faster or slower. I do know from experience, and probably you do too, that, you know, uh, an hour spent in wonderful pleasure and fun and happiness seems to pass just like that. But if you put your hand on a hot burner on a stove and tried to hold it there for three or four minutes, it it would seem like an eternity. So even in our experience, the happiness and wonderfulness of a situation for us seems to be like it goes by very quickly, but pain and misery and suffering seems to take forever. So that to me seems analogous to what you're talking about, Hayden. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'll recommend a book to you. I think you'll enjoy it. It's called The One and the Many. It's an introduction to metaphysics, which is a very important topic for really everybody to know a little bit about. The One and the Many by Norris Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E. And you want to read his chapter on time. What is it? What is it exactly? 
It's really hard to define it when you stop and think about it. So he gives some really good metaphysical analyses of that. I think you'll, you'll profit from it, Hayden. Thanks for the call. This hour is sponsored by Christendom College's Free Principles Classes. Sign up for a free online class on Holy Scripture today at NewTestamentFoundations.com. Learn to read the Bible with the mind of the church at NewTestamentFoundations.com. Compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Some emails to get to quickly. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) Does she want to be left anonymous? I can't tell. I think this is from Marcy. She says her son has a question. How can one sell his soul to the devil if the soul doesn't belong to us? It belongs to Jesus as he is the one who places it in us as we are in the womb. Can people who turn to the devil upon repentance before death, can that soul be met in heaven by our Lord? Blessings to you and looking forward to listening to your answer. Okay. The answer is yes. It's a, it's a figure of speech to say you can sell your soul to the devil. You are right that you belong to God. And not just your soul, but you and, and your body both together. As human beings, we're composite creatures. Unlike the angels who are pure spirits, we're bodies and souls. So you can't, strictly speaking, sell your soul to the devil. It's a figure of speech. And what it means, generally, is that you enter into some sort of infernal bargain with the devil in which you promise that you will agree to be damned if he will give you something in this life, fame, fortune, whatever it may be. And as Jesus says, the devil is a liar and the father of lies, and he's a murderer. So you know you will always lose. So as this figure of speech goes, if you quote-unquote sell your soul to the devil, he may or may not give you the things you're asking for, but, but you will ultimately, if you don't repent of this, you will be damned, and you will go to exactly the place where the devil Devil wants you to be H-E double hockey sticks. So could you repent from that? The answer, of course, is yes. Because it's not a true contract. It's not a true bargain. It's not a binding agreement. And you can get out of it at any time, much to the devil's chagrin. So through your sincere repentance for your sin and your desire to be forgiven and your faith in Jesus— All of that can be wiped away in an instant, and the devil doesn't get what the devil wanted to get. So that is a deal that can absolutely be broken at any time along the way because of the power of Jesus. But don't enter into—I know you wouldn't do this—but don't enter into any such agreement. Because I think most people, at least in the stories that I've read and and heard about people who do sell their souls to the devil, and again, just a figure of speech— um, they may get lots of fame and fortune and groupies and nice cars and all that stuff. And that goes by in the flash of an eye. And when it's over, it's over. Game over, man. Game over. So don't even go down that road. Not that you would. Yeah, this song. The Devil and Daniel Webster. What was the name of this song, Cyrus? Devil Went Down to Georgia. Devil Went Down to Georgia. Okay. I hope that's helpful. I remember when this was on the radio. I usually turn the channel looking for some Chicago or 
Beatles or something. All right. Point taken. Uh, yeah. Uh, let me see here. Let's get back to the phones. Jenny in Wisconsin. Good morning and welcome. Good morning, Patrick. Thank you for your diligence and hard work and love for our Lord and everybody oh, there. thank you. Thank you so much. I, I am grateful. I have a question regarding um, fasting because for... I know that we do, obviously, fasting for Lent and the Friday, but the more mm-hmm. I dug into it, the more I, fasting became my focus for mm-hmm. the fasting itself. And I know that we have, like, um, you know, it, it's spiritually important, it's physically important, and I understand. So I'm reading, reading, and of course, the more you read, the more you start digging into all this other right. stuff, which is, because it is spiritual, There, it seems like there's no end or there's a lot of information I'm getting that I just doesn't ring true in my heart. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts, books, ideas that could help me pursue this whole concept, because fasting for me or giving up meals is not difficult. Okay. Um, I'm, 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 I'm more than fine with that, too fine with that. In fact, I can go a couple of days and then I think, yeah, I probably should do something about that. Wow. So I, I wanted to be more mindful about it so that I do it for God, not for mm-hmm. myself. I guess is the bottom line. Right. And for some people, maybe most people, and I would I would have to say guilty as charged in, for myself, that it's a convenient way of dieting and calling it fasting for many people. They say, well, I'm going to fast or I'm going to give up something. I'll give up carbs for Lent kind of thing. And, you know, if, if one's motives are mixed and it's not really being done in a sacrificial spirit. It sort of drains it of its merit. So you're one of the lucky few, Jenny, in which fasting is not a problem for you. I think most people it is a problem for. It's a problem for me. It's a challenge. I'll put it that way. Um, So what I would recommend, if you're looking for guidance on this issue, I would recommend St. Francis de Sales' advice that he gives to the... um, it's not a real person, but her name in the book is Pilothea, and she is a woman who is receiving spiritual direction from the great St. Francis de Sales. The book is called An Introduction to the Devout Life, and he has a whole section on fasting and other forms of corporal oh. mortification. Yeah, And I can summarize, I mean, it's well worth your time to read his advice. He's speaking okay. to a woman. We don't. I don't remember now whether she's married or single. I think she might be married. Um, but he gives her advice based on her state in life, and one of the things he points out is that God is not seeking, typically, from the average person, extraordinary, extravagant penances, because often that can lead, in a perverted sort of way, it can lead to pride on our part. Oh, look at me, I'm, right. I'm so good at what I do for penance. But rather, he says that penances generally should be moderate and not extreme. And the best kind of penances, he says, are the ones that you do not choose. We should choose penance, and we should live penitential times in in our life. But he says the more meritorious penances are the ones that you don't choose. They come to you, and you willingly endure them. So that can be, I think, an added benefit, especially if you don't find it to be a challenge to fast or to abstain from meat, for example. Um, He gives some really creative suggestions on how to be penitential, but in a a way that's more pure of of, um, motive and not having a mixed motive. Yeah, that's exactly it. I don't 
this is, I mean, thank you so much for that because um, that's, you want to honor God, not me. And you want to do it and say, you know, and you want to, and, and this is the Lord. I mean, mm-hmm. the Lord. So I'm like, I don't, like I'm fooling anybody. I'm not fooling anybody. <laughs> so then I go to him and I'm just like, so I just want to be real about it, but I know I'm so human. So, yeah, um, that is true. Yeah. So I wrote all that down and, and I really appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. I, he's a surefire teacher. He's uh, he's a master of this area. He was a great theologian, great apologist. He converted some, mm-hmm. by some estimates, fifty thousand Calvinists back to the Catholic faith when he became the bishop Ooh. of Geneva. So he was a heavy That's duty a guy, but he was really good in the spiritual life, as you'll see from this book. Oh, thank you so much. I truly appreciate this. You're welcome. I hope it's helpful to you. And I suppose we all should read that book. I've read it a couple times, but everyone would do well to read that book. Again, it's called An Introduction to the Devout Life, and that's by St. Francis de Sales. Um, Let's go now to Gabriel in Aubrey, Texas. Hi, Gabriel. Uh, Hi, Pat. Good morning. Uh, That was uh, quite timely, talking about St. Francis de Sales and Mm -hmm. his conversion of Calvinism, uh, Calvinist. in my discussion with my Calvinist brother-in-law, um, I was wondering how you might answer a question he had asked me, um, and also a, a claim of uh, their doctrine of perspicuity, um, mm-hmm. a, a separate question. But the hypothetical that he he asked me was kind of a gotcha question. What would you say to uh, What would you say to Jesus when you die when he asks you, "Why should I let you in?" I would say, first of all, Jesus is not going to say that. It's not a question that's up to us to answer. Um, but if he wants, I mean, that's an unbiblical way of phrasing the the question, because it's not going to be like that. Um, let's take a look at what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 25. And he says, he assembles the, the people together, the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And he says to the sheep. He says, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was sick or a stranger, you came to me and helped me or you welcomed me. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison? And he says, because you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And then he says, come now, all of you blessed of my Father, into the joy of heaven that has been prepared for you. And then he turns to the goats and he says, you know, you didn't, we, won't, we don't have to go through the whole, um, you know, the whole um, dialogue, but he says, because you didn't feed me or give me to drink or visit me, clothe me, etc. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked, etc.? He says, you didn't do it to the least of me, you didn't do it to, didn't do it to the least of these, therefore you, you didn't do it to me. And those he sends off into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So what's interesting is that Jesus himself gives us the paradigm of what is going to happen when people are sent either to heaven or to hell. And it has nothing to do with him saying, hmm, why should I let you into heaven? It's the most cockamamie answer. And you're right, it is or a question. It is a gotcha question. Because the assumption is that you as a Catholic are going to say, oh, because I was a good person. Eh. Wrong answer. Try again. Oh, well, because I went to Mass every Sunday and I... Eh. Wrong answer. Try again. 
Exactly. So <laughs> it's it's a foolish question. It's unbiblical f- to start, <clears throat> and it it it's trying to get you to say something like that so they can say, see, you Catholics think you can earn your salvation. You think that you can work your way into heaven. You think that because you're a good person, blah, 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 fill in the blank, that you're going to get into heaven. And they're prepared to stomp on any answer like that that you give. So my advice would be don't give that answer. To say the only reason anybody goes to heaven is because of the love of God and forgiveness and the salvation that God freely grants to those who love him. And you can quote Jesus again, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the essence of the good news. So we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by works. Works are a response to God's grace. And as St. James says in James chapter 2, we are justified by works and not by faith alone. But it's all God's grace beginning to end. So why would I go to heaven? Because Jesus loves me and he forgave me of my sins and I'm trusting in him for my salvation. And that's an answer he cannot argue with. I'll be right back. Thank you. 